Psalm 73, would you turn please to that psalm, the 73rd psalm. And I'm going to read portions of it even though the 73rd psalm is the, is the struggle of a man with his faith and with his doubts. Beginning verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there were no pains on their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Verse 10. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived therein, surely thou dost set them in slippery places, thou dost cast them down to destruction, how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand, with thy counsel thou wilt guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. Verse 27. For behold, those who are far from thee will perish. Thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to thee. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. It's all I need just to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all thy works. One of the most impressive things about the Psalms is that they are the personal experiences of these men who write. It is like, when you read them, it is like looking over their shoulders as they write out their personal journal. Psalm 73 is no exception. He writes, my feet almost slipped. I was having some doubts about God. I just was having some problems with my faith in God. I knew that God was good to Israel. I knew that in my mind. But my faith was reeling under the obvious. 
And the obvious was that evil was succeeding and wicked men were prospering and evil men were winning all the prizes. And this is the heart cry of a man who has a profound question. And the question is this, how can I continue to believe in God with dignity and intellectual honesty when these fat bullies get fatter and they get out of life without a scratch and decent people are ground under the wheel? It's a question that some of you and all of us will have from time to time. Now we need to remember that the psalmist grew up believing that God was partial to the righteous. It was the perpetual belief of the pious Jew in that day that if you lived like you ought to live and you went to church and you paid your tithe, then you could expect God to give you a long life and a good crop and prevention prevents you, protect you from adversity. Uh, it's still a prevailing belief. It's a stubborn one. It hasn't gone away. I mean, isn't it logical that a person who lives as God wants him to live and does the best he can to do what God wants him to do, isn't it logical that God would show him some special consideration? The problem is that, that, that the obvious circumstances begin to shoot holes in that formula. And all of a sudden, this pious Jew began to see the opposite happening. And his creed was crushed under the circumstances. And he was having some problems with it. I guess we all do. I suppose that there's not anybody here this morning who hasn't grappled with that. I mean, what do you do when you base your life upon the faith that if you trust God and believe Him and, and serve Him, that things are going to be better off for you? And what happens when your faith begins to falter? Now, I know what some of you are saying. Well, now my faith is strong. I mean, my faith's not faltering. You're not talking to me. Well, if I'm not scratching where you itch, just hang on. One of these days, I will be, because there comes a time and a point in everybody's life where he has to deal with this issue. What about the problem of the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? What happens when your faith begins to falter? Well, three suggestions. When your faith begins to falter, be honest with yourself. Now what the psalmist said was, I was having some problems, my feet were about to slip, and there was this honest confession. I mean, can you believe this? This pious Jew confessing that he was envious of the, of the wicked and the arrogant. In other words, he was saying, there came a time in my life when I begin to think it'd be better off for me if I weren't a godly man. I mean, those guys have it made. And he was just being honest about that. I think somehow we've come up with the idea that we're never supposed to ever have any doubts and we're never to ever question God and we're never ever to have any questions about our faith. And when those doubts begin to, you know, 
raise their head in our lives, when those doubts begin to come and those questions begin to come, we shove them back to the side and we won't admit it. Why? Me? Ever doubt God? No way. John Claypool makes an interesting observation. He said, in the 19th century, the, the believer had this horrible fear of God. He just feared God. So a man named Jonathan Edwards could get up in a congregation like this this morning and this guy was so nearsighted he had to read two inches away from his eyes. And he read from a manuscript, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he reminded the people that God was this God who just looked forward to punishing those who, who stepped out of line. And people would hold on to their pews lest they fell into the wrath of God. Said Claypool, now in this generation, the most horrifying, terrifying thought for us is, what will my friends and my co-workers think if they see me with some doubt? I'll never admit it. Well, what would somebody think if they found out their pastor ever had a doubt? What would they think if there was a time when the pastor himself, God's people, questioning God? Well, no way would I ever admit that. And Miguel Unamano says that if a person would ever go out in the street and take, get enough courage to admit his griefs, we'd find probably everybody's grieving for the same thing. But we won't admit it, no way. We're going to shove those doubts back. Alfred Lord Tennyson said, there rests, there lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. What he was saying is this. Now you can go on if you want to saying, I believe all this stuff that I've heard, I believe all this stuff that I've been taught, and I've never had a doubt about it. But there's more faith in honest doubt than just parroting what you suppose to parrot. There is a basic principle, I think, of Christian growth, I want you to get this. A basic principle that never changes is this. That when all things are equal, a person will progress to the degree that he is honest with himself. Now I need to say that again. All things being equal, a person will progress in the Christian life to the degree that he's honest with himself. I heard a story, a Chinese fable about a thief who stole a bell. And as he was running with the bell, the faster he ran, the louder it would clang. And he knew that he would be detected, so he, he devised a way to prevent detection. He just put his hands over his ears. Now you know the absurdity of that. It's the absurdity of a person who when these doubts begin to come into his mind shoves them and refuses to admit them. Now I know that's difficult. The most difficult thing you will ever do is to come face to face in an honest evaluation of what you're really like. Sometimes on Monday evening when I get in from visitation the television is on. And I walk in the door and there's this guy up preaching. And I say to my wife, turn that off. Who is that old guy up there preaching? Good gracious, turn that off. I can't stand that. And she says, well, honey, that's you. <laughs> I said, oh, 
That can't be me. That doesn't look like me. That doesn't sound like me. It's the most painful thing in the world to face what you are really like, isn't it? You be honest with yourself. Second, be discreet with others. Now to say that you are to be honest with yourself does not mean that you're to tell everything you think and everything you feel about everybody, about God, all the time. I mean, use some discretion. We're not talking about being, when we say we're, to, to be honest, we're not talking about just getting around people and in the name of honesty, just vent your spleen, you know. Tell everything you think and everything you feel about other people and about God. In fact, he says in verse 15, he said, if I had told, if I begin to express all that I am feeling in my mind, in my heart, it would betray the generation of God. Moffat translation puts it like this. If I really said what I really feel all the time, it would destroy their faith. There's got to be some discretion. Now let me say this parenthetically. You hold my place because I want to say something parenthetically that, that's an implication of that. And this is the parenthetic implication. Faith for anybody is a fragile thing. And what you do and what you say can destroy or impair the faith of another. It's a fragile thing. It's like a, it's like a fragile portion I mean, you've got to handle it with care. You better be careful what you say and what you do. I don't know how many times people have come up to me and said, my faith was just ripped to shreds because of what I saw him or her do. I preached Wednesday night up here in a little town of Kiowa, hometown of Reba McIntyre. I walked up to this lady and I said, did you know Reba? She said, no, I'm in Chillicothe, Texas. Never heard of her. <laughs> That's another story. I was preaching up at Kiowa and, and uh, there was this guy in the congregation. He came up to me and said, do you remember me? I said, really, I don't. He said, well, I was in your church in Iowa Park, Texas, the first church I pastored out of the seminary. He told me his name. I recognized his name. And so we started reminiscing about guys that were young people when he was there and I was there 25 years ago. He called the name of a guy, he said, you know, he said he got out of church, he said he hadn't been back to church until about three months ago. He came back to church. He came to my church, a little country church up here in Oklahoma. And I said, well, what happened to him for 25 years, for heaven's sake? He said, well, I don't know. He said he told me that, that one day some pastor said something that just literally crushed his faith, and he hadn't been back in church for 25 years. Be careful how you handle this thing called faith. It's a fragile thing is the faith of another. There's got to be some discretion. You remember back in the 70s, some of us who were old enough to remember that, it was kind of vogue for us to talk about you know, being transparent and honest and open and vulnerable. You remember that? Everybody liked to get in these groups and get vulnerable and transparent and honest. What we were doing, just getting in there and thinking things we didn't like about one another, talking about it. We had this deacon's retreat, and our purpose was to go on this deacon's retreat and be transparent. As soon as we unloaded in the first session, we started talking about each other. 
I mean, I heard stuff about myself I haven't gotten over yet. I mean, we just, we just spent a weekend talking about what we didn't like about each other. It destroyed all that we were trying to do in that church. Now, I long for a fellowship where a person is, feels like he's free to come to the congregation and say, I'm scared to death with this lab report and I'm having some problems with my faith. Would you pray for me? And everybody rally around and pray for him. Or some parent get up and say, my child is rebellious and I don't know how to deal with it. I need your prayers and know that nobody will run out of there thinking what a terrible parent that person must be. But we need to be discretionary about this. You know what I'm saying? And what we say Be discreet about what we say. Finally, when your faith begins to follow, by the way, I believe that that you just need someone, some significant other that you can go to when you have a burden like this psalmist. You really need that. Point three, be open with God. Now I need to say right up front, that there are some answers for which there are no que- there are some questions for which there are no answers, and there are some problems for which there are no solutions. And no amount of reason and no amount of logic will answer some questions in life. It just will never happen. And you can have all the logic in one lump, and all the reason and all the wisdom in one lump, and you still wouldn't have what you're looking for. Because there are some questions that have no answers. And there are some problems that have no solutions. Some quizzes that have no final solutions. I'm convinced, hear me now, that what you and I need most is not more answers or more logic or more wisdom. We just need more God. And this is what the psalmist was saying. He said, when I came to, the, to confront these doubts and, and I needed some answers, he said, what I did was I went straight to the sanctuary. And what he was saying was this, by an act of my will, I didn't seek answers or solutions to those problems that have no answers or solutions. I just went to God. And there... I found the help I needed. Reminds me of uh, two young men in the city of Boston. Phillips Brooks was pastor of the Puritan church there. This great man of God's written several songs, by the way, in our hymnal. Uh, Old Little Town of Bethlehem is one of them. This godly man. And this guy said to his roommate, he said, I've got some real doubts about the whole thing. He said, my, my faith is just been ripped by intellectualism. He said, I'm going to find out, to, I'm going to find Philip Brooks. I've got an appointment with Dr. Brooks and I'm going to find some answers to these questions or I'm out of here. About three hours later, he came back and his roommate said, well, what did you find out? What answers did you get? He said, I didn't even, he said, I didn't even ask. He said, you mean you went to Dr. Brooks with questions and, and, and then you didn't even ask him? He said, oh, no, he said, you know, the strangest thing, when I was in his presence, I didn't even worry about the questions. What do you do when doubts come? 
and the specters of your mind are so fearful, what do you do? Seek more answers? Try to get more logic? Just get to God, where He is. And these questions and these answers won't seem so important there. This is what the psalmist was doing. He wasn't complaining about God. He was complaining to God. And he went straight to Him in the sanctuary. And he found out two things. Now watch this. He said, then I perceived. That's an interesting word. Then I perceived. I got perception. That word perceive means to see what you can't see. It means to see beyond the obvious, as Huxley said. Huxley said you can't see the solutions till you see beyond the solutions. It's the same, it's the Hebrew counterpart of that word that's used when James, Peter and John went running up to the empty tomb and they went inside and they came out and they said, see the place where he laid. It's like when you have this mathematic equation on the, on the chalkboard and the teachers explain it to you and you're looking at anything. Man, that don't make a bit of sense to me. All those words, all those letters. And all of a sudden you're looking at it and you say, Oh, I see it now. It's like, I got it. It's that perception that goes beyond what, what is before us. Well, you see, the, the important thing in life is not what happens to you. The important thing in life is what you see when you look at what happens to you. It's this perception. Now, where do you get this perception? He got it in the presence of God. And God, I'm not talking about jettisoning your faith. I'm talking about that the fact that faith goes beyond logic and, and, and reason. And there in the presence of God, there was this Perception, for hear me, God is the source of the perceiving look. You get that down? God is the source of the perceiving look. I think there's an illustration of it, graphic illustration of it. In the last night, Jesus was with his disciples. And they're together. I'm going to preach on this. I'm working on a sermon on this. I was working on this illustration. I said, man, that'll preach. May preach it Sunday. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, Satan desires to have you. The word is plural. It means all of you, all 12 of you. He said, Satan desires to have you that he might sift you. Then he looked at Simon Peter and he said, Simon, Satan desires to have you. And the word is singular. He desires to have you that he might sift you. And that Greek word desire there is a, is a significant word. It means to beg or plead. And what he's saying is, Satan's pleading with me that he might sift you. You know what sifting is, don't you? It's, the, it's what that process, that violent process that separates the wheat from the chaff. And Jesus was saying to Peter, in essence, Satan wants you, but he can't have you unless I give him permission. And there is a counterpart to that over in the book of Job when God said to Satan, okay, you can have him, Job. You can test him. I'll give, him. I'll give you permission. And God is saying to Peter, Satan wants you so he can sift you and he's begging for that permission and I'm going to give it to him. Now the question is, why would God give permission for Satan to sift Peter? Why would the Lord 
give, why wouldn't the Lord protect us from that sifting? Well, it's a matter of perception. The perception is in the purpose. Watch this. Satan wanted Peter so he could sift him and destroy the wheat. Jesus permitted the sifting to destroy the chaff. There's a difference in purpose and reason. Where does that diff? How do you discover that difference? In the perceiving look. He's the source of it. So I get near to God, and all of a sudden God says to me in that still small voice, Gerald, I've been trying to teach you stuff that you won't learn, so I'm going to let Satan give you a little lesson. And the whole purpose is that when it's over, wheatful, fruitful wheat, wheatful fruit or fruitful wheat, which one? Second, he's not only the source of the perceiving look, he is the source of the restraining grace. You say, oh, excuse me, Pastor, I misunderstood you. I thought you said restraining grace. You meant sustaining grace? No, you got it right the first time. He's the source of restraining grace. Now, he said, my feet almost slipped. Why didn't they slip? Because God restrained him from slipping, protected him from slipping. I love it. Hallelujah. How do I know that I will not drift too far away? How do I know that I will not slip? When I have doubts, how do I know that I won't renounce my faith and walk away? Because He won't let me. He's the source of restraining grace. It's what the old Puritans used to call preventive grace. And it means that we're protected because, not from the problem, but from disastrous results of the problem. He restrains our feet. I love it. So if you could imagine this, some of us think God like, of God is like an ambulance that just kind of drives around and cruises around and picks up bodies and kind of binds them up and gives them CPR and gets them back on their feet. See if you can, see if you can picture this. Here's a guy sitting on a park bench one day and a little old lady comes tottering down the street with a cane. She's shuffling along there and, and she gets a crack in the sidewalk and falls. And you or somebody is sitting on the park bench, jump up and you, you reach over, you run over there and you help her up and you bind up her, you, her, you, you care for her bruises and you hug her and you love her and you, you help her up. That's wonderful. Well, let's suppose, let's go back and see this lady coming down the street with her little cane shuffling along. This time, there's a big old 250-pound bodybuilder at her side. She's got her arm in his, and he's got his arm around her. They're coming along. He says, now, Granny, watch this crack. If you get your toe caught in that crack, you might fall. And Granny's shuffling along there, and she hits that crack and kind of, kind of buckles, and, and the big guy just kind of holds her, you know, and carries, lifts her, and protects her and leads her. You, you understand, you see the picture? Now this God of ours, this, this other Jesus, this comforter, is, this strong one, is not following along to pick us up. He's the one who is with us and within us to keep us from falling. And that's what Jude means when he said, if he is able to keep from falling. 
I thought you'd be up with high fives and and that's good news. He is the God of restraining grace. It's what happened when Henry Blackaby years, years ago said, I determined that I would never see anything in my life except through the lens of Calvary's love. He said, I decided that I would never evaluate anything except through the lens of Calvary. My big problem and yours is interpreting what happens to me by what my understanding of it. And so he said, when they came out that day and told us that our daughter had leukemia, I was able to look at that circumstance through the lens of Calvary and understand that even though that was the worst news we could ever hear, we saw it in the background behind the fact that God loves us. And that's what happened the other day when I walked in the hospital room out here at, at the medical center. And I was talking with a, young, with a man and his wife and they told me, they said, you know, Pastor, six years ago they told us, they came out and told us that our daughter had cancer and only a 40% chance of survival. And I said, oh my goodness, I know you must have been scared to death. And they said, Pastor, we were devastated. And then we prayed. God, we know that you love her more than we love her. And you had her before we ever had her. You do what seems good to you. For we're going to serve you knowing that you love us. That's the perceiving look. And that is the restraining grace. And that means you can go ahead and relax. God will take care of you. Let's pray. Our Father, for this moment of decision that should be the result of what we hear, what we understand of Thee, I pray You will give us courage to decide and to respond as You would plan you had planned. To may every decision now in this moment of invitation be a decision that glorify you and honor your will. For I pray in Jesus' name.